You're on with Barbara. Hey, 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 it's me, Barbara Corcoran, and this is 888-BARBARA. That's right, it's time to answer all your burning questions. From the boardroom to the bedroom, nothing is off limits. So listen up for some advice on how to live your best life. Each week, I'll be answering all your burning questions, and sometimes I'll be asking them too, interviewing some of the greatest folks I know to learn the secrets of their success so I can share them with you. Today we have with us a very special guest in so many ways. Doing my research before the interview, I kept saying, wow, really? Wow, really? So you're here to hear all the wow reallys with me today. Firsthand, we have Rebecca Minkoff. Think of just a starting story. If a young girl wants to be a fashion designer, what does she do? Does she wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a fashion designer? No, no, no. She gets the education. She knows somebody who knows somebody, gets a start, does an apprentice, da-da-da-da-da-da. No, no, not with Rebecca Minkoff. She started in the high school costume department, and 15 years later, she's a fashion icon. And beyond that, she's a great advocate for women entrepreneurs everywhere. But more importantly, she started with virtually no experience and then becomes a big deal in the fashion industry. Well, we're going to ask her exactly if that really happened and how it happened. (laughs) And so my first question to you, Rebecca, and welcome on the podcast. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. I was looking forward. (laughs) Tell me about that. I must have met with young girls. I want to be a fashion designer. I want to be a fashion designer. How does a young girl decide she's going to be a fashion designer? And then more importantly, just leave her parents at 18, move to a big city and say, I'm going to be a fashion designer and actually pulls it out. I think it's a number of components. One, I think my entire life, whenever I wanted something, the answer was no. If you want us to buy this for you, you're going to have to earn it or you're going to have to figure out how you're going to make it yourself. And this was your parents. This is my get-go? parents. Yes. Whoa, from the get- they're tough. I'm happy I didn't get them. I'm trying to raise my kid the same way. Let me tell you, it's hard. It's just mm. easier to say yes, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I got the sewing bug at eight after I wanted a dress. I think the dress was 20 bucks. And my mom was like, I will not buy it for you, but I'll teach you how to sew. And we'll wow. go to, you know whatever, Michael's and get a pattern and, and sew it. And and at that time, was 20 bucks a big ask or was it just a typical dress? I mean, it was the 80s. So 20 bucks, you know, probably, yeah. probably medium. 60 to, bucks today yeah, for yeah. a young girl. That's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. So I got the bug though, that I could have an idea. I could make it. I could create mm. it. And there was never a no for supplies or, or materials. It was as always- As long as you were involved in creating something. Correct. And mm-hmm. so I moved to New York. I had a paid internship with a designer. Craig whoa, 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 whoa. No, oh, no, no. Oh. Slow it up. Slow it up. Slow, we don't I'm want a lightning speed here. story here. Okay. okay. So you made your first dress at eight. Your mother had no issue giving you supplies. Correct. But you had to create it from a pattern and make it for yourself. After that, did you get the sewing bug and you were always making clothes until you graduated from high school? I was obsessed. And when I started going through puberty, um, Some people have all different things. I was painfully thin, bullied for it, and couldn't fit into clothes that you'd purchase in stores. And so sewing was my solace. It was my, I can fix this. I can make it my size. I can Mm -hmm. tailor it. And that gave me a lot of confidence. And so when it came time to go to high school, I picked a performing arts high school. 
thought I want to be a dancer. The teachers had other ideas for me and put me in the sewing and costume department. And that's where I lived four hours a day, just honing my craft. Were you a star there? Because I got to believe there weren't many young girls that walk into a costume department and have already been sewing for eight years. I guess you could say I was probably the only one very passionate in being in the costume department. And so she took that as a, I'm going to help this girl out. I'm going to teach her everything I know. And the other kids were kind of there just to like clock in and clock out and get their credit. But I really wanted to learn the art of draping, the art of pattern making, so I could have a real handle on how the whole system works. And was it the learning process that turned you on? Or once the curtains opened and people saw how everyone was dressed and you got tons of compliments, you thought, I did that. Where did your satisfaction come from? Both. Both. I think it was the ideation and creating that a costume is so intimately tied to a performance that was exciting, Mm. but also the challenge of figuring it out. And most of the time, at least with stage, you're dealing with people that are moving and not standing still for a Mm. picture or everyday wear. And so there's a lot more challenge, I think, involved in the costume design of that. So I'm curious why you didn't go into costume design. I would think if I was in the design field, that would be very exciting to create costumes, gives you so many different paint colors to work with. Totally. Why did you become a fashion designer, not a costumer designer? It's a really good question. I think because I had my in in the door with a designer mm-hmm. at this internship. Yes. That once that happened and the opportunities opened in that direction, I've always been a fan of going where the momentum mm. is. Mm-hmm. And you just understood that intuitively, the waves going this way, I'm jumping on it and seeing where it lands. It feels so much better. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's easier to travel when you have momentum on your back, right? Yes, it is. So how long did you stay there before you leaped out on your own? I stayed there for three years. Mm-hmm. The next wave of momentum was this I Heart New York shirt that I had made and sent to an actress before 9-11, about mm-hmm. three days before. She wore it on Jay Leno two days after 9-11. And I was flooded. This was pre-social media, but I was flooded with emails, phone calls about this shirt and where could people buy it. And the magazines were just printing it over and over again. And the influx of people wanting to order it and support our great city, the proceeds going to the Red Cross was just this moment where that's all I did for nine months. And I just remember my boss calling me and saying, you're fired. Go do what you're going to do. You know what you're doing. I'm here for you if you need. So if I were analyzing that moment in time, which of course puts your business in business, I know you're already in business, but it puts you on the map, so to speak. There were a couple of important ingredients. One, you had access to a great actress. Mm -hmm. Two, you designed a great looking shirt. I remember that specifically. I think everyone who saw it remembered it. And three, it was perfect timing when the city was injured and people wanted a sense of pride and ability to get through what was going on here in New York City. You had the perfect design. I love New York. Describe the t-shirt for those of us listening who might not be as old to remember that. (laughs) uh, What did the t-shirt look like and how did you talk your actress friend into wearing it? Prior to making the shirt, I had been in the Bahamas and I really liked how all these shirts that said Aruba or Uh. Curacao were kind of cut up and beaded, but I just didn't want to look like a tourist. And I Mm. thought, I'm going to come home and make one that says I love New York. So I was wearing it. And how did you know her to have access to her and ask her to wear it? She is married to a wonderful man who's my brother's best friend. Ah, terrific. And I was wearing the shirt. My sister-in-law wanted it. I made her one. She was at dinner with this actress, Jen Elfman. Jenna asked her for it. She's like, yes, it'll be there. 
shipping it as fast as I can. So. It's like a young entrepreneur's dream. Beyond. But still, the shirt itself is fabulous. Describe the shirt because yes. this, we're not visually showing people what yes. it looks like. Yeah, It was cut up similar to how these shirts were cut in the Bahamas. I took a boring sort of crew neck shirt, cut open the neckline, tied it, put beads on it. It was um, an angular neck, as I recall, right? You have mm-hmm. a really good memory mm-hmm. for that. Yes, it was an angular neck. One side had a sleeve, one side didn't. And it was sexy. I remember that. It was kind of sexy. And back then you could get away with this DIY look. Like that mm-hmm. was kind of in. It was pre-Etsy, but like it looked like someone had just made it. Yeah. Looked like one of a kind. <laughs> was it one of a kind or were you selling it already? I was not selling it yet. It was on the heels of her wearing it and being flooded that calls came in. And obviously e-commerce was basically non-existent. But this mm. one website called Raven Style called and said, I'd love to carry the shirt. And I said, great. You're my first account. Were you saying great before you even knew how you could manufacture it? Or of did course. you have your supply? Of course. I always what do you say, say great about before that? I know. Is that right? You <laughs> yes. think that's an important ingredient for entrepreneurs that they say, yes, when do you need it versus, oh my God, I don't know if I could get it? Yeah, I think if you've been put in the position that someone's asking you to do something, obviously you say great knowing you can probably do it. Yes, you know, it's or not, hopefully do it. Or hopefully. That's even good enough, I think, in my book, yeah. Yeah, and there's always honesty if it doesn't come through. I didn't know what I was doing. I would go down to Canal Street, negotiate as best I could for the T-shirts, go up to the garment center, buy the bedazzles for the heart, and make them in my apartment. I did that for nine months straight. So you were doing that yourself? Yes. Knocking these T-shirts off the same T-shirt again and again, again as the orders were coming in? Yes. Yeah, and when did you jump from that to actually having other people make it? I'm surprised. I would assume you would have gotten a supply in China to start knocking out the t-shirts or maybe even Chinatown, but that you were doing it yourself. Was that out of need or because you wanted it done right? What was in your head at the time? It was the cost of what you could sell the shirt for after paying for it. Mm. Where I was, you couldn't pay someone to make it because what they wanted to charge was way too much. And what did you sell the shirt for and what did it cost you to make? Of course, you had free labor, but what was the material cost? If memory serves correctly, the shirt itself was 20 And that was after I would buy a lot. Um, That's a lot for a wholesale t-shirt, I think. Yeah, I don't think he was giving me wholesale. I think he knew you were young. (laughs) Young and naive. I think I sold them for 45. And then if they wanted to be bedazzled, they were 60. And it was the bedazzle was another 20. So my margins were not great. But at least you were free labor. I was free labor. Funny how entrepreneurs don't count free labor as a cost at all. I know. Even if they can't pay their rent. Right. And I couldn't pay my rent. I would negotiate with my roommate every month. Well, like, I'm going to be a little late this month and just trust me. (laughs) You know, I invest in a lot of small businesses and have invested in a couple of textile related businesses. And I only have one that I invested in that has made it very big, which is called Grace and Lace. This Mm -hmm. is not a promo for them. Instead, it's a tie in to what you said. I remember with the two that I invested in, I even forget their names now, that went under very fast is when they finally got a huge order on Shark Tank night. They said, no, I don't know how to make it. We don't know what, what." they weren't in business. I remember when Grace and Lace got thousands upon thousands of orders for their lacy socks on Shark Tank night. They promised everybody and then apologized two days later. You're first in line. You're first in line as they figure out how to make the damn thing. And now I use that as a telltale sign early up when I make these investments in any business as the dividing line between a great entrepreneur who's going to make it and someone who's just not going to make it. A hundred percent. I'm happy to hear you're no exception. If you told me you hesitated and wait, how am I going to make it? I would have been so disappointed. 
and you would have blown my theory right out of the water, you know? <laughs> okay, so you're on Jay Leno. What were your sales on the heels of that? She would order between, I don't know, 10 and 15 at a time. That's um, all. 100. I would think thousands and thousands, no? I ended up making thousands, but it wasn't Jay Leno that did it. It was the magazines that covered it afterwards, and that wow. was a few months later. So, so the publicity went on. Oh, went on for months. So I definitely made a couple thousand shirts and I was really sick of doing that after nine months. Mm, I bet. I guess the margins weren't there. You couldn't have someone else do it at all. No, but what it did allow is it allowed me to cold call boutiques and Mm. stores and say, I know you know me for the shirt, but actually I have clothing line that I have designed. It's five pieces. Will you come let me show it to you? Terrific. So then I got my foot in the door there. And that's when I was able to, between myself and another gentleman, start sewing everything, start making a professional, I'm, I'm using quotes for those listening, organization. From there, I got a sales rep uh, through a network of women I was connected with. And we started selling. What was great is at the time, this website, Raven Style, which is sadly no longer around, but she would call me and say, I have all these editors. They want a yellow terry cloth jumpsuit. And I'm like, great, I'll go make it. So every week she'd call me with what they were trying to call in for stories. And I would just go home and figure it out. And then we'd get it in the magazine. We'd credit her website. So we had this sort of backwards system. But she was um, your publicity arm for sure. Okay. So when you had the Jay Leno success and all the magazine coverage that followed, what were you thinking? Were you thinking, my God, this is a one-time wonder. What's going to happen here? This is never going to repeat itself. Or were you self-confident and thinking, I got a hit here. I'm going to be a big hit in this business. Where was your head? My head was thinking that I'd made it. Again, I'm using quotes. Um, And again, how old were you, Rebecca? I was 21 turning 22. Mm, Not bad, making it at 21 or 22. Let's redefine what making it is. (laughs) Not paying your rent, (laughs) barely eating, no social life, and working 24 24 hours. 24-7, So obviously making it has a much different connotation to me now. But I was excited and I thought, finally, I have some wind in my sails and now I can get my foot in the door in an industry that is predominantly used to follow one path, be in the magazine, get into Barney's and you'll be a success. And I hadn't taken that route. So I was like, okay, I got my foot in the door and I'm going to keep inching it in. So it sounds to me like you saw for what it was. Yeah. How about your old boss that had left and worked for for three years? What was he or she thinking? I think she was proud when she gently let me go. What is gently let me go? I've never heard that. She called me. This is really about a week after 9-11. I was making the t-shirts and I was going down and volunteering at the site. Mm -hmm. I had lived in Soho so I could smell the smell and I was like, I have to do something. It's eating away at me. So I would go down there and I called her and I said, listen, I got a lot of t-shirt orders and I want to keep volunteering. So can I take two weeks off of work to go do that? And that's when she said, you know what? You know what you're doing. You're fired. I love you. I'll always be here for you. Go. Wow. That's the most beautiful firing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I had been punched in the stomach. (laughs) Oh, so it didn't come across as gentle. It was gentle, but all of a sudden my security blanket of my $6 an hour or whatever I was making was Mm. gone. It's not like there was going to be a lot of people hiring people during that time. New York City was going through a lot. So I was like, can I do this on my own? Well, you had no choice. I had no choice. So she did you the great courtesy of slamming it back against the wall. Yep. Do you think if you had been able to maintain that job or go back to it, you would have had the success you have? Probably not. Because it forced me to go, oh, I got to figure this out and I got to survive. Hello, this is Barbara. 
Has it been a pattern in your life that what appears to be the worst possible day turns into the best possible opportunity? That has happened time and time again. I feel like sometimes those opportunities now take a little bit longer to show themselves. Mm -hmm. But I always know on the other side of a really dark day or some really bad news, which Mm -hmm. happens to every entrepreneur daily, weekly. Repeatedly. Yes. You don't get big and then all of a sudden all your problems go away. They actually get bigger. Yes, they do. Complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So I always know that there is a silver lining on the other side and I just have to like persist and power through and something good has to happen. What's your secret to keeping the headset that you're going to power through this darn thing because there's sun on the other side? I think a great example is I had the apparel line. It ended up being around four years in. I was working on it. My margins were not there. It was not growing in a way that had a huge amount of momentum. You know, after four years, I was still a stylist on the side to pay the bills. And I thought like, this might be it. And this is not a great life. You know, I can't eat again, barely pay my rent. This is not something that's Here we go again. Here we Mm -hmm. go again. And again, Um, this was how many years into building your business? This was four years. Most people would think by four years, you'd be through the worst of the wood and that you'd be a little bit more in the easy street side. Definitely not. I think navigating the industry, again, not taking the usual path, it was hard and I wasn't profitable. That was when Jenna actually came back to me and said, do you make bags? I'm wearing a bag for this film and it's an important part of the character. So I lied and I said, of course I do bags. (laughs) Don't call it lying. I made the bag. It didn't get on set. FedEx delivered it two hours late and they started filming. Oh my God. That was the last of the money. And I had nowhere to go back to. I didn't have anyone with a well that I could extract more funds from. I just remember saying, this is the most expensive designer bag I've ever had. I guess I'll carry it around. (laughs) Because I'd had two made, one for her, one for me. And you have to take a moment just to describe the bag. I'd be curious what was the first bag that was the first of many successful bags in your line? Well, it became known as the morning after bag. And who labeled it that way? I did. Good for you. At 26, Sex in the City was the show. And as someone who worked all the time, that was like the fantasy life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to have a night out where I might not come home. And <laughs> women have relationships with their bags. They're there for a lot of milestone moments. And that was one I aspired to have. Did not have it. But I just thought, let's make this fun and novel when we name it. So I hadn't named it yet, but it was a satchel. It was faux bronze croc trim with brown canvas with this turquoise zipper. Like you meant business if you're going to be a night out, right? Yeah, totally. I'm here to have some fun and keep my work shoes on in case, you know, I go dancing all night. It's a PG-13 version. (laughs) But how did you get the name out? Because I think the name and selling that was instrumental. How did you get the name to stick? You're walking around with your new bag. How do you get people to start calling it what you want? Well, this is what happened. I carried the bag and I was in, I guess I got to go get a job. I'll be a bartender. They make great tips. I'd already bartended a friend's party and made, I don't know, 400 bucks in one night and was like, now this is the ticket. (laughs) And I was stopped enough with the bag that I thought there's something to this. Women are coming out of the woodwork to ask me who designed my bag. And I showed it to a friend of mine who had a store in LA. I said, what do you think? She goes, I love it. I'm going to buy 12 pieces and I'm going to get a friend of mine at Daily Candy to write about it. Wow. And I don't know if you remember Daily Candy. Of course. But it had the powerhouse. Wow. So if you got in Daily Candy, that was it. You were set. So we set about me and the editor talking about the bag And the bag hadn't been named yet. And she was like, what do you want to communicate with this? And we were going back and forth. And I came up with the morning after bag. Just there on the spot. I'm going to call it the morning after bag. We were going through different options. Is it Mm. the one night stand? Is it the last call? And morning after bag just felt 
fun oh. and a little naughty, but it would make you smile. It wouldn't be offensive Absolutely. to people. Yes. So the article was called The Catwalk of Shame. It went out and the, they sold out. They came back and reordered and 75 units. And it profiled units. your bag in yes. that article. Yes. The bag was a star. Yes. Wow. And then not only did they keep reordering and it keeps selling out, but they were like, we're actually- They being the friend in LA? Yeah, the store. Yes. It was called mm-hmm. Satine. Other people didn't approach you. I would think tons of people would be approaching you to place orders. Yeah, they were. But what happened is the owner of Satine was really smart. She said, I'm actually opening up a showroom and I'd like to represent you. In the span of about one month, I went from selling just to the store to being in a showroom and starting my handbag journey. And then you, in a very short order, built how many different designs for handbag? I had one style for a whole year. I offered it in 50 colors. But that's all I had to worry about was just making really great color combinations. And then the next year, the sales rep said, okay, you got to do another bag. And I was like, I do? Okay, I'll give you one other bag. And it was this beautiful thing that you could just take your time. Now we probably offer you a thousand different skews every three months. When you went into showing your bag through the showroom, kind of like the back door in a way, you reversed the process. You were again, very much outside the box. And I'm, I'm going to say, because I know it's different, uh, you'll have to cl- help me clarify what was so different and why it worked so well. But you were one of the first people to show a collection at Fashion Week that people could buy right then and there. In a typical fashion week, people see the runway, they see what they can order, and they're going to have, what, a six, eight-month lead time before they could get their hands on the merchandise? Yep. Was it all of your merchandise, or was it a specific line? It's definitely not all the merchandise, Mm -hmm. but as we made that switch, we said, what did buyers who were purchasing the product, like a Nordstrom, Saks, Neiman Marcus, what did they purchase? What did we purchase for our website and our stores? And between the combination of that, let's make looks out of that whole array. And what did editors and stylists who'd seen the collection prior like? Wow. And then you put that all together to be a beautiful show, optimizing all the things that everyone bought. So everyone wins. When we had our See Buy Wear show at the Grove, Nordstrom did $75,000 in one day just on our line. They got a lot of love, as did we. But what you were a genius about is thinking, let me deliver the merchandise immediately and let me anticipate that. Were people reluctant or what are you doing here? This isn't the way the business works. I mean, did you get any criticism or was it just accepted and it changed the industry overnight? I think that it was a combination of the old guard and the old way was starting to fail because of social media making everything available for everyone to see right away. So the consumer gets a little sick of it. It doesn't feel special nine months later when they've seen it in magazines and they've seen it online and they're like, I don't need it. Or it's been copied by fast fashion Ah. and ahead of the designer delivering it. So the customer actually just goes to a fast fashion retailer and gets the knockoff. Everyone was struggling of like, how do we change the system? And we were, I guess, fortunate that we announced. And then a week later, Burberry and Tommy announced. And so it was taken more seriously. that That put you in a serious club. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You oh, can follow our did lead. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was a little bit of good luck, but good for you because it was your idea and you did it and you got out there first. Correct. Right. And did everybody follow all the big brands started following? No or one did followed. Did they have the capacity? You they know, wish to. A lot of people wish they could, couldn't figure out what part of the cycle they were switching around and uh-huh. it got complicated. And so a lot of people haven't done it. A lot of people have gone back to the old way. We stayed with it and we're toying with, as we look forward, how do you offer the industry 
which has merit, how do you offer them what they want, which is they do want to see the future. They do want the romance and the, mm, and the, the anticipation. Ex- yep. And the exclusivity of, I get to see something that no one else gets to see, but then how do I satisfy my consumer who wants to see it as well? So now we're like, are we crazy? And we do both. You do know? you do both? We're talking about it right now. Well, you might be crazy. You don't think in building a business, you have always multiple choices and you have to choose between one road and the other? Or do you think it's usually prudent to slam it out on all fronts and see what catches on? We are starting to look at if it's financially makes sense. We have incredible partners and sponsors that help create these shows. If that satisfies a consumer hunger, let's give them that. And that is no skin off our backs. And my relationship with the consumer and the surprise and delight of that is great. And then do we have a private invitation only for industry that they get to see what's coming? So we're just looking at that right now. Can you afford to do it? Oh, that's a big piece of it, right? Now, let me take you down a different path. You have kids? Three. How old are they? Eight, five, and two. What about balance? How do you keep yourself as a phenomenal mom, which I'm sure you aspire to based on what you said about your mother. You said, I'm trying to raise them the way I was raised and have enough focus, energy, and passion left, or maybe even first for your business. What do you do? Balance is a word that was made up by a man or a woman aimed at women to make us feel like failures, like that we should have it. I've never heard that word balance applied to a man. Well, guess what? Men have never had balance either. When I interview men, I don't say, what do you do for balance? Well, they've never had it. (laughs) Go back 10,000 years. They had to go fight the buffaloes and we got to stay by the fire, right? And so genetically, even looking at it from a feeling of the guilt that women feel, right? We only have 200 years of working really under our belt. And so we're not hardwired to go out and kill all the things yet, right? (laughs) I'm not saying I want those emotions, but men have never had balance. So who said we should have balance? So I don't look at it that way. A good friend of mine who owns an incredible maternity wear company called Hatch, she coined the beautiful hustle. And I have to view it as a beautiful hustle. And there are weeks, you know, where I'm, am I the best mom? No. You know, next week I'm not going to see my kids a lot. And I have very honest conversations with them about, I have to work a lot next week, but then we go on vacation and I'm all yours. So it sounds like a division, a clear division between your work and your home. Clear division. And I think it's an optimization. So when you have one kid, what are your rules around time spent away from them and play with it, see what's uncomfortable. I think it's good to know what you don't ever want to do because then you can be like, actually, no, I don't travel for more than a week without bringing my baby with. Mm -hmm. Or then you have two kids and it's like, no, no, we're going to start meetings at 930. No one's going to, you know, die over that because I want to walk my kids to school. So I think you just start inserting these things and you could say, oh, well, she's the owner of her business. Of course she gets to say that. But I think women have to begin to demand some of these changes within corporate America or it'll never change. A little bit easier when you own your own business. Are you thankful for that? Very thankful. But I don't take anything that I don't allow my employees to take. I'm very clear with that. So if I get something, they get it too. Rebecca, recently uh, you started something entirely new. You founded something very important named Female Founders Collective. What benefit did you hope to bring to female entrepreneurs through creating that organization? So I think a lot of entrepreneurs create things out of not finding something in the market. And I, as a mother, as a woman, you know, I turn over my products to see what's in them. Is it non-GMO? Is it organic? Is it paraben free? And may I ask you why that's important to you? Because I'm a health nut. (laughs) And I care about what goes in and on my body and my children's bodies. So you make sure uh, you sell the same product that you believe in for yourself. 
Correct. And I was also really overly sickened with the wage conversation. Our 80 cents on the dollar, women of color, 50 cents on the dollar. And I said, there's got to be some way that, yes, we need more women in C-suite positions, 100%. But how do you support the 12 million women-owned businesses in the U.S.? How do you know who they are if it's not their namesake? So the idea was to create a seal as well as the network of founders, because I'm sure you can relate to this as a founder. If you're having a struggle and a bad day, you can't always turn to your staff for the answer. It'd be a lonely job, yeah. It's very lonely. So how do you create a network of these women and unite them with similar stage businesses, tips, tricks, who does your website, who records your podcast? All these things that, you know, you might Google or ask a couple of friends, but here's the network that has the experience. So not just an idea exchange, but also a support group, Correct. whatever you happen to need as an entrepreneur. And it's directed toward only entrepreneurs, right? Only female founders. Mm-hmm. They have to own 50% or more of the company. And I also wanted to create education because I made a ton of mistakes I didn't have to make because I wasn't educated. I didn't have an MBA in business from Wharton or Harvard. Do you really think that's important? I don't quite agree with it. I am not a proponent of necessarily everyone has to go to college, but I do think when you see some of these startups that come out of some of these colleges, these people have the business savvy. Most founders start with a passion, like probably many of the companies you interview, and then they lack some of the business acumen. Yes. So we're also providing education for these founders. I see. Between those three things, the directory, the seal, and the education, my goal is, well, we have 7,000 members right now. Wow, that's and amazing. And what period of time? About a year and a half. And we have the seal on over 3 million products today. Mm-hmm. You actually put the seal itself, let's say this cup was produced by a female-owned business. The, on the outside box that the cup came in. I see. Right? How do you educate the consumer to recognize it? What does it actually say on the seal? The seal says female founder collective, and it looks like a seal. Like I'm sure you can close your eyes and Mm -hmm. recognize the seal. Like if it's cruelty free, it's a little bunny. So hopefully with scale, you'll start to see this seal recognized on the 3 million products. And that doesn't even count the websites and the storefronts it's on. And And the idea is also to help sell the product. You've more people will be apt to buy this cup versus the other with the seal. Well, a study was done by this company called Berlin Cameron. They found that 80% of women are more likely to purchase female founded companies if they knew how. Ah, I only basically purchase female founded Mm. and I seek that out. Could we get people to change their habits? So instead Mm. of walking to Starbucks, no offense, go to Nina's Coffee down the street. What do you think? Because you are sitting in a a fortunate position to really see the minds and concerns of so many female owners. What do you think is the largest concern or the largest problem that female owners have? And is it any different than what you would find with a male entrepreneur? Access to capital. That's it. Yep. So you try to help these women find access to capital. And how do you do that? Because I know it's a very biased system against it. It is incredibly biased. Less than 3% of companies get funded. But I will say this. There's a trend right now. Every business needs to get funding. And every business should approach a VC. No. And so women think that because those are the only women you're seeing on the cover of magazines, that that is the only route for funding. So I tell a lot of these women, first of all, do you need money? Can you just have a profitable business that Ooh. you have a great life with and you make money? Like whoever thought that that could be a good idea. Or can we get you access to, let's say we work with Visa a lot and we offer a workshop in coordination with Chase, but alternative forms of funding. Is it mm. a bank loan? Is it a bank and credit loan? Is it funding to start a business or when you're up and running and you need cash flow? Well, women experience both. We only accept founders that have a product and have launched. We want to cover women that need to grow or scale, but we don't want you to only think it's venture capital money. Here is the landscape, whether it's 
crowdfunding with iFund Women and bank loans or credit loans. We want women to understand the breadth of opportunity. One thing we launched and announced is a partnership with UBS where we're actually going to be organizing cohorts of 50 women-owned businesses in New York, giving them funding education, investment education, and then access to some of the UBS clients who are interested in directly investing. Mm -hmm. So by the time they're ready to accept that money, They know exactly how to deploy it. We have so many listeners, female, male, who really need help in exactly what you described. How does someone get in touch with you if they want to become part of Female Founders Collective? You can go to our website, femalefoundercollective.com, or you can DM us at The Female Founder Collective. And it's that easy. Yeah. And then you apply. Okay, you heard that. Yeah. So let's move on to something that's very exciting. Your podcast that yes. probably has the best name in the world, Super Women. You have a phenomenal name. What do you think is the secret in doing a podcast, giving attraction, and making one person recommend you to another? And what do you like to talk about? We used to do events at our stores, and I wanted to offer my consumer something other than selling you product. I really wanted to create intimate, authentic connections. And I thought, I have access to all these incredible women. My customer should also be able to have access. So let me interview these women in my stores. My fire code ends at 92 people. I didn't feel like the format necessarily lent itself to social in a compelling way. And Uh I thought there's got to be a better way to do this and reach women all over the country. And again, the goal was to help women all over the country. That was the end goal. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because these women were helping me personally and growth-wise and business-wise, so I know they could be doing great things for other people. Decided to launch a podcast and, again, took my mom's advice and was like, I'm going to figure this out. And launched it the end of 2018 and was able to bring incredible women like you who's coming on mine. I'm happy. I'm looking forward. And other just luminaries who have been through the hard and the highs and the lows. And it's not the how I built this podcast. I want to get at the heart of some of the more vulnerable things. Mm. And what did they learn from? So it's just been great to storytell. And it's been soul food for me. Just as great for me as I hope my audience feels. I learn something every time. And I also have a feeling of like, I'm not alone. No, of course. Well, what's the reaction you're getting from women? It's been great. I can't complain. I have an incredible listenership. The reviews are my pay for doing it. When I get a woman who writes in and says, you changed my life, I was going to give up and I didn't. I'm not really the star of this podcast. It is the woman I'm interviewing. So it's something she said or a story that she could relate to. And I think if that helps you in any way, then that's great. Well, it's not just starting the podcast that is important, but it's also what you bring out from the person you're interviewing. It sounds like you're very good at pulling out inspiration. Yeah. You know, when it got good is I stopped doing my research. No research whatsoever. So you just sit in the chair and say, so tell me about yourself. The native curiosity I then have, because I don't know, brings that out in the storytelling in the way that my listeners like. And you're not worried that your listeners might know quite a few things more than you know, just in the very beginning, and you might look naive. With most people that I'm interviewing at this point, I know enough. It's not like I walk in blind. I'm like, who are you? What's your name? (laughs) I know enough that they know, but then I want to then find out the things that we both don't know. Like a great discovery. All right. So super women, it's not just for entrepreneurs, but if you're an aspiring entrepreneur, you're going to learn a lot listening into, right? Or if you're not an entrepreneur. Oh, really? So you're trying to get people off the box to become entrepreneurs or just adore people who have really succeeded in life and tried their best and made something for themselves? Correct. I think you can be any woman. You can be a woman who doesn't work or housewife or wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Working in corporate America, I think the podcast has nuggets that apply to everybody. So super Superwomen is going to give you some daily inspiration. Yes. 
Got a bad boss? Can't get a raise? Want to start your own business and can't get off the block? Come on over to Business Unusual, my other podcast where I give straight talking business advice. That's Business Unusual. Subscribe and catch up. We got great, great interviews and material there. From anybody's viewpoint, you're the walking, talking example, Rebecca, of success. As a female, as an entrepreneur, as a fashion designer, what are you afraid of? Anything? Tons. Like what? You don't look it. You look so cool, collected, solid on your feet and Uh, in your inner core. I'll tell you something that changed my life, that you could get the worst news in the world, and this is why I'm calm. And I just came from hearing the worst news in the world, which... I can't share today. There was a moment about two years ago when we were looking at things happening with wholesale and the consumer not shopping, like, would we make it? And would the bank take everything? And I just remember going, you know what? They can't take my kids and they can't Mm. take my family. If I have to start over, I will. What does rock bottom look like for me? When I really stared at that, I was like, as long as I have my family and we're okay, then everything can go. And I think that saves me a lot because I'm like, what's the worst that can happen? I have to start over. Maybe I have to leave New York. But there's a certainty and security in I can do something and I can make it work. And I think that to me has been a savior because no matter how bad it gets, if you are secure and that you can start over again, then that's something that you can hold on to. And it's not the zeros in your bank account. It's can I create something from nothing again? And I think I could. What I really have here today, much more dominant and much more impressive than a fashion designer is someone filled with wisdom. And the three things that are going to stay with me, the idea that you're a mom with three kids, juggling a business, going through all the stress that typical business owners go through, and you can call that kind of balance or lack of balance a beautiful hustle. The idea that a tactic you share with us, which you said you make a list of what you don't want to do. I'm deciding as each thing comes up, so much better to have the list. And last, what's the worst that could happen? The most valuable word in assessing anything. What's the worst that could happen? Knowing what the worst really is and you're not in it. Correct. Three treasures that you share with us among your whole life story. And I want to really thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hi, Barbara. My name is Mason. I am in Miami. I have a challenging time building a company and having to be a mom, even though they're adults, and mentoring and leading a team and building a team as well. But most importantly, I'm a caregiver. How do you juggle all of that? And I could use any tips on dealing with the caregiving part, especially since it's something that I have to deal with that's new. Thank you. I'm going to let Rebecca start because I know I have a couple of more questions on your question for clarity's sake. So go ahead, Rebecca. Hi, Mazan. Hi, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to meet you. You Thank too. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is fun. I was curious before I can give you any good advice. What is your company? My company is uh, Telefix Technologies and Telefix Communications Holdings. We are now a augmented reality company that is building 5G networks. What if uh, you were talking to a five-year-old, because I, I don't have a good head for this, and uh, really dumb it down and tell me in the most simple terms what that is? 
it's simply simplifying service processes and operational management for telecom providers. Mm-hmm. A telecom provider, for example, being? We build the cell sites as well as I found a lot of holes and, and issues in the way in which their processes and their operations were running. When I launched as a service company, communications is all of our lifeline today. And I couldn't accept the way they were doing things. And it was also not a sustainable business model. So I fixed it. It just grew like crazy. The C-suiters validated it before I really built it. So they wanted to improve all of these processes, improve quality of work. That's where your business comes in. You solve those problems for them. Okay. That makes so much more sense. So I have a question. It seems like your business is on fire, but you're also dealing with caregiving. Are you also taking care of your children full time? Well, no, my children are grown and this was going to be my fun hurrah now to really build my business. Got it. I've got them in college and, you know, it seems like today's generation has more anxiety and everybody expects everything now. And so I'm constantly having to mentor that, which I don't mind. I love being a mom. The caregiving part is for my husband and uh, it's a little too close to home. And so I'm having to challenge scaling the company. He's diabetic and it's rapidly declining. He's very young. So sad. So it's an anomaly. Like, like, what is the deal here? Do you have household help for your husband? Do you have a full-time helper at home? No, not yet. Navigating the healthcare system is worse than having to get it done. I'm so used to getting things done and I want higher quality and standards. And I find there's no dignity in the healthcare system. May I ask you something? I think healthcare yeah. is so difficult, particularly when it comes to finding someone who's going to love your loved one the way you do. Correct. It's a big target, right? And very hard to attain. But I'm just curious how many people you have working for you. And is there not a chance for you to delegate finding the right healthcare people through people you work with? You're the owner of the business, I'm assuming, right? Right. And so we're at a an inflection point where I just signed a deal that's helping me to launch the company. We have the team and everybody ready to go. Oh, so it's not a business up and running yet. It is up and running. We were operating, then we were pre-revenue to simplify. I just signed a major deal with a huge telco. Getting back to the issue, which you really wanted to know about, building a company and also caregiving are not comfortable bedfellows. Yeah. Oh, and scaling. Well, we're having to scale. We're going from zero to scale overnight because of this whole 5G rollout. And I'm there using my technology and I'm getting a paid proof of concept. So I just I couldn't walk away from that. This is not a plug or a promotion for my mother's company, but she actually has a company out of Florida called Home Health Works. No way. Yes, yes, she does. And she really? provides nursing care for people that need in-home nursing. I don't know if you have insurance being that you're pre-revenue, but they do take insurance and you wow. find expert caregivers. And for what you need right now, if you are going to focus on growing the business, you need to find someone to help you take care of your husband that you trust yeah. and care for. And I found the best help, again, different stage of my life, but with nannies through asking friends and never through a paid service, Yeah, I would reach out far and wide and you know your community can galvanize around you. And I bet you'd find someone who's in a transition period in their lives or isn't quite happy at a local hospital and is a nurse practitioner. And I think you just have to broaden your network of who you're talking to. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. And take the time to interview them because it'll free you up to do what you're going to do with this amazing telecom deal. Please promise me that 5G won't kill us all. 
(laughs) (laughs) No, actually, I wish it was ready because then it would be simple and I could really implement my solution and use telemedicine. My HIPAA certification would be done and I wouldn't have this problem. Then I could be anywhere. Listen, the nature of any business situation, the nature of home life is solving problems. Mm -hmm. If I could underline what Rebecca had suggested to you, it doesn't sound that complicated. It sounds more like deciding who you are and what I think you're thinking of yourself now. And I bet it trickles over into your work as well, is that the burden is on you, your caregiver. And what I hear between your lines, most importantly, is exhaustion. As an exhausted individual, you don't do well in anything that you do in life. You can't give it your all. So you're right. You're in more control of what you could do with your husband right away and get expert Mm -hmm. help. And you're more in charge of that timeline than you are at work. So I would skin that cat right away. This week, get it done. Do the best you can and move on. And then after Mm -hmm. that, you are in less in charge of your business, but you'll you'll jump over every hurdle you have. Okay? Thank you. Thank you so very much. We're both wishing you luck. Don't go on so exhausted. Get going. Let's go. No, you're right. You're always on the money, Barbara. Good luck. Thank you so very much. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. It's wonderful to speak with you both. Thank Thank you, you, Mazan. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that's all the questions we have time for today. I hope you found the advice helpful. Think I got it right? Think I got it wrong? Have an idea for a great guest? Come on, give it to me. Tweet me at Barbara Corcoran using the hashtag 888Barbara and keep those questions coming into the 888Barbara hotline. You can subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't be coy. Leave a review for the show at Apple Podcasts and keep the party going on. We'll see you next time. 888 Barber is produced by Sandy Smolens for Audiation. And Lila Mann is our executive producer. Audiation.